Good afternoon, everyone. This is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents, part of KWMR's West Marin Matters radio program series. Every Monday at 1 o'clock, you can hear about a topic relating to the ocean, the environment, or our local economics in West Marin. On Ocean Currents, we dive into the big blue and talk about ocean discoveries, natural history, research, science, management issues, and ways for you to get involved and for we all to get involved to help protect our ocean. Right off the coast here, we have some of the most productive waters in the world and three contiguous national marine sanctuaries. And the reasons these waters are so special and so productive is a result of the weather we've just been experiencing this past week and today, and that is the wind. These springtime winds generate an incredible phenomena of upwelling and, and fill the surface waters with nutrients for phytoplankton, zooplankton, and inviting larger animals to feed in the bounty, such as humpback whales, the, the topic of our show. I was going to say the guest, but I don't actually have a whale today. Today we'll be talking about um, one of the most fascinating whales that grace our coast. Sometimes we can see them just from the shores of Point Reyes, but most of the time we need to get on a boat. This whale is so big, it deserves a show entirely of its own. So today we'll be talking with David Matilla, the Science and Rescue Coordinator from the Hawaiian Islands Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary in Hawaii. David has been conducting research on whales since 1978. Prior to coming to the sanctuary, he directed humpback whale studies at the Center for Coastal Studies in New England. He focused on the Gulf of Maine feeding grounds of the humpback of the humpback whale and the principal breeding grounds in the Greater Antilles. He received the Ocean Hero Award from the Smithsonian Institution in 1994 for his work in promoting international conservation and scientific collaboration, as well as the Environmental Hero Award by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. David and his colleagues have developed equipment and techniques to attach to and restrain free-swimming whales in order to release them from lethal entanglements and fishing gear. With all this experience, he also is coordinating an international humpback whale study in the North Pacific, which we'll be learning about a bit today, called Splash. So I'd like to welcome David. Aloha. Aloha. Welcome. You're live on the air. Well, good to be alive. <laughs> well, I bet you it's quite beautiful in Hawaii. We've got some chilly wind here, but it's, it's a good thing for the ocean. So, David, let's just start. You've had some experiences that most young folks just dream about as they think about careers in marine biology. How did you get interested in whales and starting to work with them? Well, I have to say I'm kind of a uh, almost a dinosaur because I got started uh, back at a time when there wasn't a lot known about whales, and um, really a lot of my uh, practical experience was very helpful. I, I'd been on the water all my life. I'd been... Uh, sailed my own little boat several thousands of miles, and I uh, was a fisherman. And I, I used that that experience. Um, you know, at the time, it was kind of like, well, where where are they, and can you find them, and how many are there? Very simple questions. And so I kind of backed into it without going through the um, the traditional academic route, and <clears throat> started my own uh, project down in in the um, breeding ground in the West Indies, and. And kind of learned from there and learned as I went along. It's a little harder to do that these days. Interesting. And so you've recently migrated over to the Hawaiian Islands um, to work for the Hawaiian Island Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary. Why are the Hawaiian Islands such an important destination every winter for humpback whales? Well, I wish we could uh, tell you, actually. Um, it's it's interesting. We, we've learned over the 30-something years that I've been studying whales, we've learned a lot about their populations, the numbers, how they move, the movements, a lot about their behavior. Here in Hawaii was um, really the epicenter of understanding humpback whale behavior throughout the world. And uh, but what we haven't learned a lot about is why they choose the places that they choose to come to. And we back when I started, people I sort of asked people that. I said, well, why are they going down to the West Indies? And they said, well, we think it's it's warm, clear, shallow water with a smooth bottom and maybe not too many predators. And that's about where we are today. We don't, we don't know much more than that. Do they breed in similar um, habitat areas like the Hawaiian Islands elsewhere in the Pacific? Yes, they do. Actually, um, there's uh, currently, or that we know of, there's a, um, some uh, breeding areas uh, in 
southern Asia of the Philippines and Okinawa Islands and Ogasawara Islands, here in Hawaii, um, also in some offshore islands offshore of Mexico, the Raviajeros Islands, and then uh, down the coast of mainland all the way down into Central America. But they do. It, one of the the boundaries seems to be uh, 21 degrees centigrade. They always seem to get into water warmer than that, and we don't know. A lot of people assume it's because of the warmth, but it could also be something about the the uh, lack of productivity for predators, or the clarity of the water, or um, other other things associated with that warm water. Interesting. So, how many how many whales come to the Hawaiian Islands every winter? Well, it. Basically, the last good estimate we had was about was in 1993, and that was about um, uh, five to six thousand, or about five thousand whales actually, in Hawaii. And the Hawaiian, the the whales that come to Hawaii are believed to be about two thirds, approximately two thirds of the of the North Pacific uh, of all the humpback whales in the North Pacific. And uh, so they. We have the majority here, it seems. Interesting. That's it's just funny. I, I wonder how they found it and originally. And do we know how long historically um, humpback whales have been coming there? Is there historical well, actually, records? Actually, that's one of the really fascinating mysteries. It's it's not. Uh, we don't know for sure that they've always been here. Uh, in fact, the evidence, the preponderance of evidence so far, kind of suggests that maybe they're. They're relatively new. They may have just discovered these islands two or three hundred years ago, because there's, uh, or about two hundred. There's not um, uh, not a lot of uh, uh, information in the Hawaiian uh, lore or language about humpback whales specifically. There is a kohala or whale, which which was believed by most to be primarily the sperm whale, and they did use the teeth from that when they stranded, uh, but. Um, the whalers that came here were actually uh, Arctic whalers that would come here in the winter to um, reprovision and probably drink and carouse a lot, and then they would go back up to the Arctic to um, to hunt in the summer, the spring, summer, fall. But they they didn't mention in their logbooks that they saw any humpbacks or or uh, certainly not a lot of them. So we're it's kind of a mystery. They may have it may be a, a relatively recent discovery by humpbacks of the Hawaiian Islands. Cool. So uh, the, the, the humpbacks that come to Hawaiian Islands are coming, breeding in Hawaii, and they are feeding in Alaska. Um, what are some of the other uh, feeding areas of humpbacks in the North Pacific? You were mentioning some of the breeding areas in the tropical latitudes, but how about um, some of the other foraging areas? Well, they um, uh, we know that they they actually, on the eastern Pacific, that is the U.S. West Coast, Mm-hmm. The some of the feeding grounds uh, start as as far south as uh, Southern California and the Channel Islands and, and that area uh, extend their their. Uh, it actually turns out that the, most of the West Coast sanctuaries appear to be sort of the hotspots for productivity and therefore for humpback whales along the West Coast. And then there are quite a there seem to be quite a few in the Br- British Columbia southeast um, Alaska. Gulf of Alaska, Bering Sea, Aleutians, and all the way over to Russia, mm-hmm. um, and and even probably into northern, well, southern Russia, maybe northern Japan a little bit, um, but um, primarily from Russia on down. So this region here, with Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, as well as Monterey Bay and Channel Islands, these are destination foraging areas for humpbacks in the summer and fall months, but our uh, whales that come here don't necessarily breed in Hawaii, the Hawaiian Islands. They breed down in the south, like Costa Rica, Mexico. But do you think they ever cross over and sometimes decide to go to Hawaii instead? Well, um, that's kind of an interesting question, and we're we're uh, finding that out. Uh, we have um, just about finished the analysis of this, uh, the data from this very large, uh, comprehensive humpback whale research project uh, that you mentioned, the Splash Project. And if I um, if I read it correctly, I don't think we found any doing that. Um, I wouldn't say that they would never do it, but uh, because we do see some, we have seen already some whales make some pretty interesting cross-ocean migrations, like from, uh, from the Russian Aleutians to Hawaii, or even one year in the Philippines and the next year in, in Hawaii. And uh, there's also some movement from one year in Hawaii and the next year in, in Mexico, that kind of thing. 
But so far, I don't believe we've found uh, any whales from California. They all seem to go down the coast to, as you said, to mainland Mexico and Central America. Mm -hmm. I think some of our whales also go up to Olympic Coast, although I'm not sure. Some of those might be the ones that go to Hawaii. It's just interesting. Hawaii seems a little closer than Costa Rica, but maybe not. I'd have to look at the miles. Yeah. Actually, no, you're right. The um, uh, the northern, the Washington, Oregon ones are, are also being, those are being found down in, in Central America. Oh, they do go south. Okay. Yeah, and British Columbia is sort of the cutoff. We do have a number of whales from British Columbia that come, and Southeast Alaska that come to Hawaii, but Hawaii seems to be mostly whales from Hawaii, from Alaska and British Columbia, and um, and also a smattering from the Aleutians and the Bering Sea. Interesting. For those just tuning in, I'm talking with David Matilla from the Hawaiian Islands Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary, and we're talking about humpback whales in the in the Pacific Ocean, the North Pacific specifically. Um, one of the things that always tr- intrigues me about these whales is they spend time in huge temperature changes. And just thinking about humans as mammals, we have a, a hard time with, with ad- adapting to temperature. And how do the whales do it from going to some of the coldest regions on the planet to some of the nicest, warmest tropical waters. What are some of their physical adaptations for dealing with those temperature changes? Well, uh, actually, the, it, it, it is interesting because um, most of the large whales are, are better adapted for the cold water. They're, the large size means they have a, a, a lower mass to, to surface area ratio, which means they lose less heat into the into the surrounding environment. But um, so in in effect, humpbacks are probably a little more in danger of overheating down in in Hawaii and the breeding grounds than they are of um, of freezing up in the north. Um, and that's been one of the some of the speculation about why humpback whales have such long uh, pectoral fins is that. Uh, that those may act, amongst other things, that may act as a bit of a radiator. Uh, they can increase the blood flow, and and they definitely do increase the blood flow to extremities like their pectins and the flukes and the dorsal fin, and um, cool themselves down that way. But they're they're pretty active, some of them down here, and I do wonder, I do worry about them overheating. But they <laughs> seem to have adapt, adapted pretty well. That might be a concern, actually, if we do have some extreme climate changes in the ocean temperatures, that might be something that the whales will be responding to. It's possible. It's, it's uh, with, with whales like humpbacks that are, are um, they actually hold the migration record for any mammal. They, go, they travel, they have been documented traveling farther than any other. They, they seem to be somewhat adaptable in terms of, you know, stopping at a certain temperature. But um, yeah, we don't know. We don't know if it, if there's, if there are ocean temperatures that are too hot, uh, I know I work in American Samoa with the Fongatelli Bay National Marine Sanctuary. We've been doing a marine mammal survey there, and the water temperature there is a good bit warmer than Hawaii, and they do seem to manage it. But um, but definitely they're having to travel farther and farther. It seems uh, that may be one of the the uh, issues as the as the Arctic and and the, and the Antarctic waters warm. They may. There's already been a report, I think, of some humpbacks further up in the Bering Sea than anyone had seen them in recent memory. Wow, that's cool. Now, when they do these big temperature changes, I think I read somewhere, and maybe it was gray whales, but wait, they have barnacles that attach to them and different parasites and in the colder waters. And then when they get to the warmer waters, do those survive as well, or do those drop off? Um, I think some of it, it's believed that some of them do. I'm not an expert on parasites, but I, I know that that for humpback whales, they um, uh, they do have some barnacles that have to be uh, by their size and by their position on the whale. You, you know, sort of season after season, they do survive that. Wow. Um, but certainly, the 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 temperature change probably does impact them a good bit. And and actually, we I've, one thing I've noticed about unhealthy whales or or in in my case, I work with a lot of entangled whales, which are definitely often unhealthy. Mm-hmm. They do get a, a parasite load much, much, uh, much more rapidly here in the warm waters than they do up north. Interesting. Yeah, I've seen that before on pinnipeds. Sometimes they'll have gooseneck barnacles on their uh, flippers that probably are not very healthy if they uh, have those barnacles on them. Um, now, how about their communication? Um, I you sent me this great CD that I want to play some of for everybody to hear some of these songs. But how do they use uh, their songs when they're in the, as part of their natural history? Do both the males and the females produce these songs? 
Uh, actually, um, so far, it, we've only found the males uh, producing the songs. Now, all of them, both the males and females, do make sounds, and a lot of the sounds that they make when they're not singing sound like, you know, portions of the song or, or notes of the song. Uh, so the females do make some of those sounds, but the males are the only ones that seem to put it together in that very structured, uh, uh, repeated pattern uh, that, uh, and hence it's called a song. And um, and so since it primarily happens during the winter, during the mating season, uh, we we there's strong evidence, coincidental evidence that it, that it has something to do with that. The uh, the question is, you know, what exactly and. Um, the, the conventional wisdom was, was that, well, there are an awful lot of aspects of it that sound like a, uh, an advertisement by the males and that the females may be choosing the males based on that um, the quality of their song or something in the song. But um, the guy who's been doing the most work on this over the decades, really, uh, Jim Darling, is, is kind of finding that here in Hawaii, anyway, most of the, uh, the animals that come over to a singer and join it are other males. And sometimes there's a bit of a altercation, very brief, but sometimes they swim off together as if they're forming some kind of um, coalition, uh, perhaps. But so it's, it's actually still kind of a, a mystery. It's not a, not a slam dunk. We don't know exactly uh, what it, what it uh, is used for during the breeding season. Wow. Those are incredible things to try to figure out. It must be really hard. I'd love to play some songs. So I'm going to um, put up one of these tracks that you, um, gave us. Let's all take a listen and, and listen to some of these humpback whales. are absolutely incredible to listen to and there's you can hear some stuff in the distance too how do you collect these sounds well basically we use a a, a very simple underwater microphone called a hydrophone it's it's you know basically a microphone that's coated in in a sealant so that it doesn't get wet and just we, we don't uh, we're not doing a lot of work with sound but we do make recordings for other folks um uh, when we find so it's mostly when we find a whale that's singing then we if it's a good situation calm and that that we'll pop the hydrophone over and uh make a recording we've actually um there's a phd student from australia who's working with the song recordings we've made in american samoa uh, she's trying to figure out there there's a lot of uh, heightened interest in the humpbacks down there because of the japanese proposal to start hunting them and um so they're trying to figure out you know how many different populations are there and they're doing that through genetics and photo ID, but also uh, looking at the song structure and uh, uh, and it's uh, it's 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 interesting it, because um, the the song can change sometimes by the introduction from uh, an animal from a different uh, uh, from who's singing a different song from a uh, I think in the in the case of Australia they had a they had uh, most of the animals in Eastern Australia were singing um, uh, a pretty standard. Eastern Australia song, and one winter some animals from Western Australia were recorded going up the coast singing their Western Australia song, and <laughs> the next year all the all the whales were singing the Western Australia song or something like that. So there's there's um, evidence of cultural transmission, so it which is fascinating, but makes it maybe difficult to use as a tool to determine you know the the isolation of populations. Wow, that is so interesting. I'm fascinated by some of these sounds. Um, so let's actually go a little bit more into this big study that you're somewhat wrapping up with conclusions now, the SPLASH study. You've been coordinating with scientists internationally and different agencies to study these humpback whales in the study called SPLASH. Can you tell us a little bit about what SPLASH stands for and some of the overall goals of the study? 
Sure. First, first, I have to say I'm, I'm one of the coordinators. It's really a, a teamwork, and it's uh, it's been a remarkably successful collaboration of um, of over 300 researchers from 50 different organizations around the whole North Pacific. So it's um, uh, I've played a my modest amount in, in in helping to coordinate in Hawaii and and helping to get the overall project going to some degree. But uh, basically, the the splash uh, stands for. It does actually stand for something, which is get out your pens. Uh, <laughs> Another acronym. Yeah. Structure of populations, levels of abundance, and status of humpbacks. And um, But splash is a lot easier to say and a lot splashier, I guess. Yeah. When you, I always think of the, the whale breaching and splashing. So you got a good, you got a good one there. Yeah. <laughs> but basically the objectives were to... Um, for one, to first of all, to coordinate all the people that were working with humpback whales around the Pacific um, into a unified sort of standardized methodology of, of very simple techniques of photo identification and uh, biopsy uh, uh, biopsy sampling of small skin pieces of skin tissue, um, and also to at the same time as coordinating the people that were currently doing things to. Uh, to get into areas that that nobody could get had been getting into, and that meant in large part some of the offshore areas of the Gulf of Alaska and the Bering Sea and the Aleutians and Far East Russia. Those were those were spots that um, were just too difficult, and nobody had been there really since whaling days, to, uh, by and large. And the idea was to um, to collect images. Uh, I think your listeners are probably aware that humpback whales have these unique black and white patterns on the underside of their tails. And uh, each pattern is unique to each individual. So if you're behind the whale when it goes to dive, and if it lifts its tail, you can take a picture of that, and it's like fingerprinting the animal. And um, we collected um, thousands of those photographs, and uh, those were all coordinated and and analyzed and matched by uh, the Cascadia Research Collective in in, uh, uh, Olympia, Washington. And they've uh, just finished this really Herculean task of of matching all those by hand because we still don't have a a way to do it by computer. Mm, and, my goodness! Yeah, that's, no, it was. That's like it, a big card game. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and um, and it, you know it's all fine in the first year. It, it, what we what we decided we would do is is to collect images in all the breeding grounds that we knew of and all the feeding grounds uh, for two for basically starting in the winter of 2004, the summer of 2004, the winter of 2005, the summer of 2005, and then the winter of 2006. Mm-hmm. And, you know, comparing the first year was not too bad, but as as we went on season after season, the, the, now these these poor folks up there at Cascadia were matching, you know, uh, each new photograph to thousands of photographs, and that was growing. So it just took, I don't know how long it took to take one photograph through the whole catalog by the end, but... Um, Several hours, I'm sure. But anyway, we're it. It, it was uh, remarkable. We set our we set our goals on certain to collect certain numbers of, of photographs and and biopsies, and we were very successful. And uh, they're uh, just finishing up the uh, the matching of those photographs. Actually, we'll. I was hoping by this time of this interview that we would have some of those results, um, the final results for you. But it will be coming out, I think, in a in. Um, uh, in about uh, a week and a half. Oh wow! And yeah, I, the uh, we think that the primary results may be, come out in the uh, scientific journal Nature, but uh, then it will be followed by a press release. So for folks who are are interested in learning uh, about that aspect of the study, what we learned in terms of the movement of animals and then how many there are and that kind of thing, it will be coming out um, in a. Uh, well, you probably st- stay tuned on your sanctuary websites. Excellent. Yeah, we'll give out the website towards the end of the show. Um, let's let's take a short break right now, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about some of these um, efforts. And I think one thing that I should have mentioned at the very beginning is humpback whales are an endangered species, which really puts a lot of um, importance on why these studies are so important. And we do have seem to see them coming back, but let's talk a little bit more about that on the second half hour. And so, David, please stay with us. I'm just going to put you on hold for a little bit here. And uh, we'll be back in in just a little bit with some more information about humpbacks. Sounds good. 
For those of you just tuning in, you're not listening to cows. You're listening to humpback whales. Um, some sounds that were shared by David Matilla from the Hawaiian Islands Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary. Listening to KWMR 90.5 FM and Point Ray Station in 89.7. And you've just been listening to Sounds of the Humpback Whale. They're not cows. They kind of sound like cows in those songs, but they're humpback whales singing. And David Matilla from the Hawaiian Islands Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary is with us today. We're talking about humpback whales and a study that David is a part of um, in Hawaii, um, studying humpback whales throughout the North Pacific. So thanks for staying with us, David. No problem. We're back on the air. So uh, we were just talking, you were giving us some of the overall goals and the objectives for this study. And what are what are you hoping to get out of this project overall? How do you think this will advance our knowledge about humpback whales and protecting them? Well, as you know, humpback whales are an endangered species. Um, although there's uh, some of, of the list of endangered whales, there, there are some folks who feel that the humpbacks may be doing a little better than others. But we, we need to... Um, to more fully understand the the structure of their populations, uh, you know, the most common question I get is, how many are there? And I have to always say, well, in which population are you talking about? You mm-hmm. know, because you can have a situation where you've got a lot of whales uh, recovering nicely, say, between in the Hawaii, Alaska, but maybe the the whales of over on the uh, western side of the Pacific in in um, uh, Asia, maybe they're not doing so well. Um, and so we need to more fully understand uh, their their the population structure and in order to be able to say to then make the assessment of how many are there in each each uh, group and which ones are doing well and which ones aren't and then my my particular interest has has been since I got involved with this in New England um 25 years ago or so was the uh is the 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 problem of uh whales getting entangled in in uh, man-made ropes and nets and so we've added to this um, the splash project, not just looking at how many and where they move and what the genetics are, but we're also taking thousands of images uh, from the side of the animal to look at um, scarring and evidence of, of interaction with uh, man-made ropes and nets and with boats and that kind of thing. Interesting. And I bet you for every whale you see that have either scars or some type of evidence of entanglement that there's... How many more do you think that you haven't seen? Well, that's that's the big question. Is um, uh, of the ones the ones that we see with scars, those are those are the survivors, and we don't know um, the relationship or the ratio between how many whales survive versus how many uh, die from an entanglement. But I I have continued working and collaborating with um, uh, folks back in in New England where this has been uh, identified as a major problem for humpback and right whales. And there's a long-term study that I used to direct there, the Gulf of Maine humpbacks, and I think they're getting very close to figuring out the relationship between the scarring and how many die. And um, and it's 
I think, a little shocking. Uh, people are pretty shocked to uh, to learn um, how many animals have interactions. Uh, back in New England, a conservative estimate is is uh, somewhere around fifty six percent of the of the population show evidence of entanglement. And what was more shocking to me is when we started doing that year after year, um, we found that. Uh, uh, actually, the, the person that I work with on this, Dr. Uh, Juke Robbins, uh, she found that that the it, certain individuals, or when you looked at the same individuals, they could be getting entangled at a rate of um, 10 to 20 percent new entanglements each year. So it's um, it, it's a it's a kind of epidemic, and in some areas, and we're curious to see uh, what the situation was out here in the North Pacific. So is the gear they're getting entangled in active fishing gear? Is it derelict fishing gear that's just drifting along? Do you have an idea of that? It's all of the above. Um, it, we were hoping back uh, when we started taking gear off whales and, and figuring out what it was, we were hoping that we could identify a particular you know, uh, source and, and try to prevent it, because that's the name of the game ultimately is preventing it. Um, but... Looking at it so far, it, it looks like these animals can sort of stumble into um, almost anything that's out there. And, of course, the preponderance of what is out there is actively fished gear. Now, this is not the uh, gear that is, say, being towed behind a boat. It's usually what we call the, um, the passive fishing gear, which uh, is um, traps and things that are set and, and they have a rope and a buoy, and, and they sit there for you know hours or maybe days, and then the fisherman comes back. Um, but also there's a certain portion of the of the problem which is um, is derelict gear because fishermen lose a lot of gear and debris even uh, we've we know now that uh, from studying them and looking at it here in Hawaii and uh, also work with collaborators in Australia that whales be, can become entangled in in fishing gear when they're uh, or, and ropes and nets when they're not um, feeding and so and in fact some young animals do and that that we think may just be playing with it. So they haven't learned yet that the difference between a, a raft of seaweed and a raft of marine debris, and they may um, become entangled in it by playing with it. Wow. So what are the techniques you use for uh, trying to remove it? You've you've pioneered some techniques and have been the go-to person in regards to in removing gear, but how do you remove gear from a huge 45-ton mammal well, obviously, very carefully <laughs> if you want to <laughs> if you want to keep doing it. But um, I first would would be remiss if I didn't uh, give um, credit to uh, John Lean in Canada, who back in the late seventies uh, had a epidemic of entanglements in inshore fishing nets up uh, uh, cod traps up in in Newfoundland. And um, but m- almost all of his whales were anchored; they got stuck and. And that, once they get stuck, they kind of give up and, and sit there. And if you're careful and don't disturb them too much, you can get them out. What what we came up with in New England, and this was um, actually at the suggestion of an old, uh, the, the father of one of our scientists who was a fisherman and, uh, and actually uh, uh, hunted uh, or fished for tuna. And he said, well, you know, why don't you keg them like they used to back in the old whaling days? And we thought about it. And I don't know if people are all that familiar with the old whaling, but basically when they threw a harpoon at a whale, that that, did, that wasn't what killed the whale. That just attached a rope to the whale. And then they would put on uh, kegs and buoys and, and even get towed around in their boats on a Nantucket sleigh ride until the whale tired. And then uh, when the whale tired, it would just come to the surface and lay there. And they that's when they would actually come up alongside with lances and drive those into vital organs. Sorry about all this gruesomeness, but... Um, that's what killed the whale ultimately. Now, we don't throw any harpoons or anything like that, but what we do is if the, if the entanglement is bad enough and the whale is swimming, then we will attach our own rope to the, to the gear that's on the whale, and we'll get towed around in our little inflatable raft, and we'll add buoys. And for humpbacks, most of the time, if you add a couple of big floats, they, um, they tend to slow down and stay at the surface. And, and oftentimes, if you add enough, They'll just stop, and once they stop, then you can you can uh, we use a soft bottom inflatable and have you know can bump up around them, and they they seem to um, be cooperative in that regard or in shock. Not sure uh, sometimes, um, but um, we have been able to to stop them and get the gear off that way. But it is something that's very dangerous to both the people 
and to the whales. And because they're an endangered species, we have to have um, the not only the blessing but the authorization of the uh, Marine Mammal Health and Stranding Response Program and work under an, an endangered species permit to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not something... Uh, and and there's a, it's obviously I've given you the, the quick and brief and simplistic idea of how we do it. Obviously, there's a lot of devil in the details, and we have special tools that we use that attach, attach and we have all of them, almost all of our knives are, are knives that um, are sort of hook or V-shaped and cut by you hook them on things and then pull away. Mm-hmm. And we actually have breakaway gear that, um, for instance, a, a knife that, that comes off the end of a pole but has a rope attached so you can get away from the whale if it's thrashing and you get the you get the knife where you want it and then move away and just pull on the rope and at a safe distance. So um that sounds some, really yeah. intense. <laughs> yeah, well it can be, although if it's if it's done properly and by the safety protocols that we've established, um it's hopefully not not quite as exciting as it sounds. Uh, and actually, one of I've, I've worked uh, heavily here in in Hawaii with Ed Lyman, who will be is is going to be doing a series of seminars and trainings up up and down the uh, West Coast in Australia. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, excuse me, not Australia, Alaska, coming up here shortly. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's for uh, folks that have been identified as having um, experience with whales, experience with with strandings with boats around whales, and and that have been sort of hand selected by by NOAA Fisheries and the permitting uh, offices. Wow. So do you feel that, um, I mean, you probably put a lot of effort towards these entanglements and rescues, but do you feel there's that part of your effort is also spent towards figuring out how to prevent this? Or it seems like a very different scale of of uh, trying to solve that problem. No, absolutely. We've, after, you know, after learning the extent of the problem for, for um, humpbacks and right whales, and I think one could make a case that for some extremely endangered populations like um, like right whales and uh, maybe western gray whales, western Pacific gray whales, which are down to about 125 individuals, I think, saving one can make a, a difference to their chances of recovery. But it's this happens at such a rate uh, that really the and you can't get to them all. It's just a big ocean out there, and you cannot get to them all. And so the we've become more and more convinced that the answer is prevention and that's um, and it makes sense also for um, for fishermen they don't want they don't want uh, uh, whales getting in their gear it's ex- you know they lose the gear it's expensive um, you know all of that and so what we've been doing uh, for the past um, decade is really trying to gather as much information as we can every time we take uh, uh, anything off of a whale uh, from you know the age and the sex of the whale, where it's from, to what type of gear, and 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 actually, uh, Ed here in the in the Pacific will, uh, if it, if it's possible to, we will track it down and try to figure out where it came from and when it was set and when it was lost and what kind of conditions and and if it mar- appears to be marine debris, then we give it to the marine debris team here in Hawaii and they'll track down you know, where, and give us some idea of where the whale may have encountered it. Mm-hmm. But um, ultimately the idea is through reducing the amount of, of rope and net in the water column uh, That's uh, and, and maybe coming up with uh, some better fishing and safer fishing practices that uh, we, we hope to prevent it. Yeah, I think the challenge is these areas that are so productive for fish are also the foraging areas for these for a large number of species. Do you see other types of whales being affected by gear? I hear most of it being humpbacks, but do you, and also the right whales, of course, on the East Coast. But are there other types of whales? I haven't really heard of a blue whale entanglement. Yeah, no, they they can. Um, Some of the more streamlined whales may be a little bit less likely, but I would say some of those species are just more cryptic. That is, we don't see them as much, Mm. and and they don't show as much of themselves at the surface. So we don't have a really good way of, of uh, estimating. Um, I would say that this isn't just a U.S. issue by any means. The, there was a recent um, study done in an estimate that, that annually around the world, over 300,000 whales, dolphins, and porpoises die you know, each year in, um, in entanglement. Now, most of that is, or a lot of it, is smaller uh, cetaceans, that is, uh, dolphins and porpoises. Uh, and most of that is determined by the 
is sort of extrapolated from the fisheries observer programs, but it's much harder to get a handle on the how many large whales do. But we do pretty much every species that um, that overlaps with gear that I'm aware of. Uh, we've seen entangled say whales, entangled fin whales, entangled minke whales. Uh, even um, the few blue whales I've seen, I think one of them was entangled. So it's uh, uh, it's not exclusive. Entangled, even entangled mm-hmm. sperm whales also. Wow. Um, so let's go into the some of the other efforts that are being accomplished through Splash. The we're also we're studying this recovery effort, and one thing we didn't really talk about too much is the recovery from whaling days and the the huge amount of of humpback whales that were taken during whaling days. And have you seen about how fast has this population recovered from whaling, and, and are they still affected by it since this is an international species that is all over the Pacific? Well, um, this, this is a pretty difficult topic because, quite honestly, I've never put a lot of trust in the estimates of how many whales mm-hmm. there were prior to whaling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason is that it's a pretty... The, the way that um, that the International Whaling Commission tries to do it, and and I have to say, there's some you know very very good minds that are working with a, very intensively with a lot of data, uh, trying to figure this out. But basically, you know, they look at how many whales there are today, and then they look at the history of how many were taken and recorded in logbooks, and they sort of trace backwards and figure out how many whales there had to be prior to whaling in order to end up where we are today, mm-hmm. given how many we know were taken over what period of time. But now that sounds that sounds pretty simple, but then you get into issues like, well, how do you deal with the illegal whale, whaling that wasn't recorded? And mm-hmm. some, some of that has become um, available, some of that information from, um, from the former Soviet Union. Uh, I believe there were over, I think there were over a thousand humpback whales taken in the North Pacific that weren't recorded. Um, and, what about the animals that were what they call struck and lost, and uh, that is in the early whaling? Well, they they were harpooned but got away. How many of those survived and didn't? And there are actually formulas and equations that try to figure all that out. But uh, I know that the the only estimate, or not the only, but one of the estimates uh, that uh, uh, puts the population in the North Pacific at a, prior to whaling at about fifteen to twenty thousand, somewhere in there. And then after the whaling, right when it stopped, uh, mo- the population estimates were less than 10% of them were um, remained. But again, it's a it's a very inact- uh, inaccurate science, and there's been some recent work looking at genetics and trying to figure out how many there must have been prior to whaling in order to have the genetic diversity that we have now. And those estimates come in an order of magnitude higher. So instead of 15 to 20, it would be 150 to 200,000. Now, those estimates are even cruder and based on a lot of, uh, a lot of other assumptions that have their, their issues. So it's, you, can, you can understand where we are. It's really mm-hmm. difficult to know exactly how many yeah. there were. So if some of the genetic analysis that you're doing through the SPLASH study is also looking at the stocks and where they... Do they ever overlap or trade trade breeding grounds and not so much about estimating the abundance? What are some of the other things that the genetics can tell you? Well, um, I'm not doing the genetic analysis, that's for sure. It's way <laughs> above my, my head, but uh, uh, Dr. Scott Baker at Oregon State is doing that. And um, there, there are a number of different things you can do. It depends on, um, well, first and foremost, and, and most simple to me is, you can determine the sex of the animal, and believe it or not, that's it's not like, um, say, killer whales where there's a sexual dimorphism, and you can tell oh, that, that 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 you can tell the males from the females. Uh, with humpbacks, it's it's a lot harder, and and basically until uh, relatively recently, the only way if it was a really big whale with a really little whale swimming with it, you were pretty sure that was a female. But but uh, then um, there are ways in Hawaii, if you're in the water, you, if you get a good look at the underside, you can tell. But even that's, that's you just can't do that for every whale. So the, um, the little piece of, of skin sample, which, by the way, is, is a, a dart that's um, sort of shot at the whale and, a, and bounces off, and it takes a, um, a piece of skin about the size of an eraser on a pencil. And they don't even feel it, probably, huh? No, and actually, I mean, a lot of the times there's no reaction whatsoever. If there is, it's a little flinch, like what was that? And 
And frankly, sometimes some of the stronger reactions I've seen has been to a miss where the dart went in the water right near them. And so it's it's really just a, a very momentary uh, startle. And um, But from that, now, uh, besides the genetics, or along with the genetics, there are uh, approximately 44 different analyses you can do, wow. everything, everything from looking at um, what they eat, uh, their through a combination of stable isotopes and fatty acids. And uh, uh, you can look at toxins. Um, you can look at, uh, we're hoping, uh, beginning to develop hormone assays. So look at, uh, uh, for instance, a pregnancy test for, for whales mm-hmm. that's being developed. And, um, and a lot of other things about uh, their health and, and, uh, and diseases and, and all of that. So it's a, a remarkable um, tool for understanding uh, understanding all sorts of things about whales. What's well, really fascinating, the techniques and the technology that we're getting these days to learn about animals that we can barely see, they're below the water. What has been um, one of your most memorable experiences with humpback whales with, with all the work that you've done? Well, um, I guess, you know, in some ways it's, I, I've always felt like being a, a whale biologist is a bit like being some kind of um, biological monk that's uh, that's uh, uh, sworn to poverty, and and so, so I really the only traveling that I do is with the work, and it has but it has taken me to some amazing places like Greenland and and American Samoa and and uh, and other spots, and and that I have to say up in in Greenland, just working up in the fjords above the Arctic Circle, looking for humpbacks and fin whales around ice, icebergs, it, it just was a it was like being on another planet. So that that kind of thing. Um, I remember one day where that you know we were in the 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 um, so-called sunset uh, was still light, but um, with a giant iceberg, and we had some killer whales and sperm whales and blue whales all swimming around and humpbacks, where you could see them their white uh, pec fins down deep, look you know through the sort of slate color, and it was really pretty, just a a, a remarkable experience, but. I, I guess also, obviously, some of the more um, heart-stopping were the, the rescues, and, I, and, and probably the, the very first one was, was uh, probably the most cathartic, I would have to say, because it was a whale that we had seen since it was born. Uh, it, uh, we had seen it as calf, and it had always been one of these really friendly whales that came over to boats and mm-hmm. swam around. And it got badly and badly entangled in the summer in a in a gillnet a monofilament where it had it through the mouth and mm. wrapped over the back and wrapped around the tail, so it was kind of hogtied and and we racked our brains for how to how to try to get it out of it and that's when this uh, um, uh, the older uh, fisherman told us, "Hey, you know, try kegging." So when all of a sudden she turned up outside of the harbor on Thanksgiving Day and we went out and and actually got a hold of the net trailing behind and put on some floats and she actually stopped and we were I remember being up at her head and and, and we had cut the line across the back and I was trying to pull the net out of her mouth and and um but she was very gentle with us and and eventually I think just opened her mouth and that came out and then wow. we were able to cut her free and and off she went and she came back uh, two years later with her first calf so Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it was a it was a a you know pretty amazing experience. I I don't know who was more shocked when we actually got a hold and stopped her, whether it was her or us. But it was, wow, yeah, those must be hard stories, few and far between, but so warming to keep you motivated and and working hard to continue to to solve the problem. Um, we are just about out of time, and I just wanted to um, ask you one more quick question. If there was just one thing you could tell people about their role in helping to protect whales from entanglement or toxins and helping to protect the ocean, what would it be? Well, I think uh, actually, as a scientist, I, I have to plead with people to to try to understand scientists and and try to understand that we're that that. You know what people I think really don't like about us is we we're never black and white. You know it's always gray, and I I think that if people can just under can you know realize that this is it, it's always going to be a little bit of gray and uh, uh, and that and trying to understand that and and appreciate the difficulty of the science is is helpful. But but then obviously just taking care of your ocean. You know and and if you do go on whale watches, uh, research the the vessels and make sure they follow the 
the regulations and guidelines and 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 look for ethical behavior on the water. That's excellent, excellent answer. Thank you so much, David, for all your time today and for all the work you're doing with the whales and, and helping to protect the oceans. Thanks again for coming today. Uh, no problem. I enjoyed it. All Thanks. right. I just wanted to mention um, David's last comment about as far as um, researching vessels. There are ways that you can uh, see humpback whales right here off the coast of California, right outside of San Francisco and Bodega Bay. And the Farallon's Marine Sanctuary Association works with a good vessel and great naturalists. They'll be doing a couple whale watches this summer and fall to try to get out to see some of these whales that we've been talking about that are foraging out here. You can call 561-6625 or get online at farallons.org to find out about trips there. And also, we're doing a Cordell Bank trip. Uh, if, you, if you want to brave the long day out to Cordell Bank out of Bodega Bay um, in October, through the Point Reyes Field Seminars, we'll be doing trips out to Cordell Bank October 11th and 12th and 18th. And if you want to learn more about that, you can give me a call at 663-1397 to hear more about the field seminar. I want to thank David again for sharing all these stories about humpback whales. There's so many interesting things about them and listening to those songs. And I do have a phone number. If you happen to ever be at a beach or on a boat and you see an entangled whale or dolphin on the water that's alive, um, a phone number to call to put the action plan into place here on the West Coast is 562-980-4017. And that is a hotline to call um, to get the response effort out. For entangled seals and sea lions, um, you would call the Marine Mammal Center, which is 415-289-SEAL, S-E-A-L. Thank you so much for joining us today on Ocean Currents. You can catch archive shows and subscribe to the Ocean Currents podcast online at cordellbank.noaa.gov or tune in the first Monday of every month at 1 o'clock. So until then, remember that we all have a place in helping to protect the ocean. And thanks for tuning in today.